And we talked about this in 2021 as well. The last time we saw that kind of expenditures increase in entertainment was when people were coming back from World War II. They came back. We had basically shut down the economy to do World War II. So this is like a World War level event of entertainment increase, of transportation increase, housing increase. All that stuff that we just saw is because the level of commitment that whether we were volunteering or being committed by the economy that we experienced to the pandemic was the same as World War II. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. It's filled the wall up with our English dead. There's a kind of a cool app that's based on um, behavioral research. It's called Speech Jammer. You need to have earbuds in. And what happens is you have something to say, but you have an echo of yourself with a very short delay to it that talks right on top of yourself at the same volume as your own voice. And people can't talk. They stop talking. It's fascinating. It makes you forget things and... It works for me. Yeah. Um, So we have lots to talk about. This is the personal wealth coach. We talked uh, about China. We scratched more than the surface, but still only the surface on China last hour. How does that even, that is, how can you scratch more than the surface, but only the surface? Because um, we have other things to talk about as well. I think we should start with the big picture of why is it so weird right now? And that's what you had prepared to talk about. Mm-hmm. Well, normally, and I've got a book on this, uh, recently started, uh, The History of American Business Cycles, it was just published this year. Um, but normally, when we have a recession and a recovery, it has to do with the business cycle. And a business cycle involves lag, where as we come out of a recession, there's a shortage of things, and manufacturers and service providers ramp up and the people then spend more money and they're able to hire more people at the companies and they ramp up a little further. And so the companies reacting to consumer spending keep racking up their investments, keep making more stuff because you can't make stuff. It's not like a fast food joint. When you want to buy a car, Detroit has to set about making that car about a year before you buy it. So they have a lead time that they have to start building cars. And so they build cars based on their expectations of what the consumers are going to buy. At some point, the consumers run out of money and they've been spending more and more and more with each successive year. And the companies have been profitable more and more and more. And they're making more stuff more and more and more. And then along comes a year when the companies continue to make more stuff, but the consumers buy less stuff and the price starts down. And suddenly the car manufacturers and the car dealers realize they've got too many cars and the washing machine manufacturers and dealers realize they have too many washing machines. So they start cutting prices and laying people off. Well, that, of course, people have already stopped spending a lot of money, but you start laying people off and then they're going to spend less money because people get laid off, don't spend very much money. And that cycle then decays into a recession and we start all over again. That's very oversimplified, but that's basically the way it works. The Federal Reserve responds to this by lowering interest rates and making borrowed money more available when the economy is sinking into recession or 
when it's still in a recession and they want to get it out. Uh, it's the reverse of what was done, by the way, in the early 1930s by the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve was uh, trying to attack inflation by raising interest rates after 1929. Right into 1934, they kept raising interest rates thinking they were fighting inflation when, in fact, what we had was deflation and they just didn't have good data or good theory and we got a depression as a result. So that's normal. But what's happened this time is the recession was not caused by a business cycle, but by a virus. And even had there been no government restrictions on people going around and buying things and going to restaurants, a lot of people were just scared to do it. So they didn't do it. And this caused a lot of people to get laid off. This caused uh, a pretty severe, if very short recession in the United States. And that could have turned into a depression. So based on some good monetary theory from a lot from both sides of the, the left and the right, uh, the idea was to pump money into the economy by whatever means. And the Federal Reserve started buying notes and bonds, which pumps money into the economy. And the United States government sent out some stimulus checks. We All this has happened before. But in the United States, as soon as the public concluded that the pandemic was over, they, as they in many cases, had, unlike a regular recession, they had not spent their money. They had been saving money, a lot of money, far beyond the stimulus money in their bank accounts because they couldn't go out and spend it. And so they had a delayed desire to get stuff and they had a lot of money in their bank accounts and their credit card. And by the way, the majority of what was done with the stimulus money was not to go out and spend it, but to pay off credit card debts and things like that. So there they are with uh, very little debt and a lot of money in the bank and a real strong desire to go buy a car and eat out. And they started doing it and they started doing it a lot. Well, in the middle of the, the problem that occurred with that is that that same pa pandemic hit later. This is, again, an oversimplification, but it hit later in China and China, China basically shut down production of things that we needed to fulfill the demand in the rest of the world. So there's a shortage, a tremendous sudden shortage of manufactured items and a sudden surge in demand for manufactured items. And the prices started going up quickly because of the laws of supply and demand. Let me, well, let me throw happened. in a, a thing right yeah. at that same moment. The, the people that are actually selling the products in the United States at the same moment realized they couldn't sell the things. People wanted to buy more things than they had available to sell. If you're mm -hmm. selling things, that's not a good situation. You want to have more things. You go back to your traditional sources to get more things. And they're saying, we're not going to give you more things. This is the China position. So we started moving where we're getting our things. Mm -hmm. The same money well, that was causing everything to get more expensive was also being invested toward the future when things would be less expensive. So back to you. So we've had a lot of people with a lot of money trying to buy a very limited number of things and trying to get a limited number of services. Then you throw in a complication. The complication is during the pandemic lockdowns or reduced economic activity because people didn't want to catch the disease. A lot of baby boomers, and this was forecast a long time ago, who were in their 60s uh, and even into their 70s had been working. And they looked around and said, I can't go back to work. I got to stay home. And they liked staying at home and realized they got enough money from other sources. They didn't need to go back to work. So they didn't go back to work. So now we have a labor shortage. And not coincidentally, uh, I guess it could be coincidentally, in the middle of that, something happened on the southern border of the United States. There had been for several decades a strong effort to get companies to build manufacturing facilities just across the border in Mexico because Mexico had an abundance of workers and a shortage of jobs. 
We had the jobs, so people came across and worked in the United States. In many cases, because of our antiquated immigration laws, the job was there. We needed them to come across, but they came across illegally because our laws wouldn't allow them to come in and get a job. Well, that bore fruit just about the time all these other things were happening. So the workers who previously were coming across the border pretty much stopped coming across the border. Now, there's still people coming across the border, but they're not workers. They're people who are fleeing failed states in Central and South America. They are refugees which is a different issue altogether. So all this happens at once. We have a worker shortage. We have a product parts shortage. We have a product shortage. And we have a lot of people wanting to spend money, which means we get inflation. Well, the Federal Reserve jumped in there and proceeded to fight inflation by raising interest rates, which had very little effect on anything other than the banks. Let, let me give you some real numbers to parse in here. When you're talking about Weirdness. 2021, we start to open back up. People get out and start spending like crazy. There's still a lot of people pretty locked down that are still looking for another house or another car or all of that, but they're starting to spend again. So when we look at consumer expenditures, the Bureau of Labor Statistics comes out with some stuff that doesn't sound like it's very labor-oriented, like what are our annual expenditures for everything that we do year by year? Uh, they've got some other good stuff like the, the inflation rates that we get are coming from the Bureau of Labor St Statistics. Okay, so in 2022, yes, I realize this is now September of 2023, but this is when their report has come out. It came out on Friday, and it's consumer expenditures for 2022. And no big surprise, it was a 9% increase from 2021. And that had a 7.5% increase from the year before. So when you look at those two numbers, you go, whoa, that's a huge increase in prices. Well, yeah, we experienced that. Uh, housing expenditures were up 7.4%. Transportation was up 12.2%. Food was up 12.7%. We can keep going down the list, but a little microcosm in here of where things are weirdest. Entertainment expenditures. So we're talking about um, equipment, supplies, entertainment stuff. What are we talking about there? Well, we're talking about going to the movies, uh, eating out. Uh, so what did we see for 2022? Increases and they went up by 3.1%. That doesn't sound like a lot compared to all the other things that were up in the double digits. Why only 3%? Well, um, they increased 22.7% in 2021. So the fact that it went up from that means combined, it's more like 25% up, 26% up from 2020. So we had a 3% increase, which doesn't sound like much, but it's increased above the almost 23% we had the year before. Um, that's We're seeing that level off to very little in 2023. We're seeing transportation and housing, food, insurance, entertainment, all that stuff is coming flat. So inflation seems to be under control at this point or very close to it. But this is like the little flavors to what you were just saying. When we talk about a 23% increase in what we spend on entertainment in a year, that's like if you went on uh, uh, four vacations going on another one, uh, five vacations, only 
it's across that amount of spending increases just it doesn't happen normally it is not something that we see in statistics going back any number of long long periods the last time we saw it and we talked about this in 2021 as well the last time we saw that kind of expenditures increase in entertainment was when people were coming back from world war ii they came back we had basically shut down the economy to do world war ii so this is like a world war level event of entertainment increase of transportation increase housing increase all that stuff that we just saw is because the level of commitment that whether we were volunteering or being committed by the economy that we experienced to the pandemic was the same as World War II. That is hard for people to comprehend. It's really hard for people to comprehend. But that's why it's weird right now. It's still weird. We just had a weird thing. It's not normal. And it proceeds from there. So we have this abnormal event going on. Interest rates are up, which restricts borrowing. Uh, and Inflation is coming down, I think, probably by the way it would have come down without the rising interest rates, but I'm not the guy to make that decision. Uh, We're seeing the things happen that indicate inflation is over. But at this point, historically, because the Fed has raised interest rates so much and the yield curve is inverted, we're supposed to have a recession. But because this is not a standard economic cycle, we're not having a recession. We are, in fact, accelerating. The economy is accelerating despite the higher interest rates. And it gets a little complicated at this point. The reason we had such low interest rates for, for so long was can be summed up in one word, China. It was cheaper to make things in China and ship them here than it was to make them here. And as a result, a lot of manufacturing moved to China and the prices declined because the, the, peop- the goods made in China could be sold for lower cost here. You can surely, you can see that very clearly in electronics. So what happened then was there was a race to lower prices, which netted out to extremely low interest rates, sometimes negative interest rates and inflation in the United States. And businesses being very, very happy because their sales were going up and their profits were going up and they didn't need to raise prices to do that. The difficulty comes at the end of that, and now we're at the end of that. We say interest rates are up and they're very high, but if you actually look at the longer-term interest rates, treasury interest rates, they're back where they were for most of our history. They've been, they're up, yes, they're, but they're up from what? They're up from an abnormal low. So we're in an interesting position, and the end result is to take this around full circle and tie it in at the back end. There are, and we've said this before, there are three experiments. There's one big experiment with three methods of approaching it going on in the world. The European has one method, which is heavy bureaucracy, regulate everything, standardize everything, and we'll all be happy. No central government. And in China, it's we're going to have a dictator, and it's going to be very rational, logical here. It's not going to be crazy and chaotic like it is in the United States. And in the United States, we have this weird form of government where most people get to do pretty much what they want to do whenever they want to do it, including start businesses and buy and sell things and make things. And the end result, as we not the end necessarily the end result, but the result we are seeing today is the United States economy is accelerating. And by the way, part of our economy, a critical part, is that two-thirds of our GDP is driven by us. We constitute two-thirds of our GDP in that we consumers buying and using up things is what drives the train. China and Germany, the two big powerhouses of the 20th century and 
early 21st century, depend on exports. Exporting to us, exporting to China, in the case of Germany, uh, China exporting to Germany. But their, their economies were driven by export. And I'll give this to Chairman Xi. He recognized the danger in that and was trying to crank up the consumer economy. Unfortunately, he also became more authoritative and more dictator-like, and as a result, he has suppressed the consumer economy there. Um, the Europeans, again, led by the Germans, largely focused on export, and when your customer suddenly gets into trouble, you don't have any control of that. And as a result, Germany is experiencing both uh, roughly 5.5% inflation and a great decrease in economic activity because their two biggest customers were uh, China and Russia. And for obvious reasons, they're not selling to Russia. And for less obvious reasons, they're not selling to China because China isn't the things that they the were consumers. They are not buying things. Well, it wasn't just the consumers. What what Germany sells to China is mostly the equipment to do the manufacturing, which mm -hmm. China is famous for. So the the equipment that makes the stuff that China makes comes from Germany. But we're moving our factories to other places than China. So even China's ongoing retooling and of their own manufacturing has slowed way down. So they're ordering a lot less stuff from Germany. Now, I think and we think that that's likely to pick back up again as the other factories start opening up in Mexico and in Canada and in Thailand and and in uh, Vietnam and across Malaysia, there's all these places that it's opening up and those factories are going to require equipment as well. They just haven't gotten to that point yet. So Germany is likely to have its economy increase again, but they're mm -hmm. in the malaise because they're dependent on other people. There was an old saying, particularly in the 20th century, that if the United States catches a cold, the rest of the world has pneumonia. And the reason is we were who they sold things to. If you have a business and you're selling more than you're buying, which is hopefully you do that as a business, your customers determine your health. And the United States was customer number one to China. And apparently they overlooked that. As a matter of fact, I read things uh, translated from Chinese that, have, that were published there that indicate that they thought we were so dependent upon them that we would not stop buying from them. We would not stop investing there because they had made us so dependent. Well, they're finding out that's not true. Ru Russia had the same thought yeah. about Europe and their natural gas. There's no way you'll ever go to anybody else no matter what we do. Well, there is a line that you've got to cross at some point that causes us to go to somebody else. Russia found that line. It was the border of Ukraine, oh, well, a new border of Ukraine. They, they passed a different border a couple of times already and had no big drawbacks from it. And now they passed finally the last border, crossed the line. Well, China's crossing of the line isn't quite so... We can't point to one moment in time. It's their entire performance, their lack of reliability, their cracking down on their customers. So Apple is sort of famous for working hard to continue a good relationship with the government and the people of China. They've tried really hard to, to alter their perspective and their outlooks and all of the way that they do business to keep good ties with China. And now China has just basically treated the iPhone the way that the United States treated Weibo, their phones, uh, Huawei, 
uh, uh, Huawei's phones, Weibo, the uh, the app or the the uh, website for buying things and for social commentary. Our government has said these things are bad. Well, their government is turning around and saying, "All right, we're going to say the same thing about Facebook and about the iPhone." When it's a completely different situation, where the reality is that if we have an iPhone, if there's an iPhone. Say it's a compromised by the United States government iPhone in a nuclear power plant in China. We're not learning anything. That nuclear plant was probably built by the Germans. <laughs> but if there is a, a, a Huawei phone in an American nuclear power plant, they're learning a tremendous amount. So they're just tit for tatting. They're turning around and slapping us back because we slapped them rather than saying, the company that you're slapping here is likely to now move its plants. You're limiting the company that has been the most loyal of the American companies. You're limiting them in their market to you. I mean, every time we turn around, there seems to be, I mean, it can't get much worse than this. They're going to eventually realize they're being really anti-business and anti-investment. Their economy is suffering for it, and they turn around and double down. And this is what we're seeing here. When we look around, that's a bad idea. And to flip back from this subject, where we're seeing productivity decreases in China and unemployment increasing drastically in China, flip that over and the Labor Department just came out for the United States as a productivity increase of 3.5% in the second quarter of 2023. What is that about? Why are we getting better at what we're doing? Uh, and our productivity levels have been rising for 2023. We're slowing down the hiring and we actually have been predicting this for about 18 months when we had this massive push to hire as quickly as possible and then we said well I'll expect productivity to fall once the hiring has been there and we've got time to digest expect productivity to start to rise and we may be getting record levels of productivity in the near future that's what we're finally seeing when you hire new people you take your best people off of whatever they're doing to train the new people. That causes the most productive people to become less productive, to help people that are the least productive people. But long term, that leads to increased productivity because the best people to train are the people that know how to do it the best. That's not always the case. Sometimes they're really bad teachers, but usually it's the case. And so we see that on the big picture numbers regularly. Hiring increases, productivity will decrease until it's been digested. And then we start to see a 3.5% increase. What is that? Why is 3.5%? We act like that's a big deal. If you were getting that at the bank, you'd be like, ah, oh, that's not a big deal. Well, it's no big deal. Here's why it's a big deal. Because it's like the productivity increase means that their wages kept up with inflation first. The interest rate you get at the bank is barely keeping up with inflation. The 3.5% is above inflation. That's how productivity is measured. They look at what your wages are for the number of hours and what you're producing in those same hours. And wages are up. Productivity is up beyond that. So if you're looking at productivity as a number, and this is, this is the most basic I can get about economics. People talk about supply and demand. Well, what causes supply and demand? The, even more basic than that is demographics and productivity. Who's eating the stuff they're demanding, who's consuming, and who's creating. That's the demographics. And then productivity. 
how well are they doing it? The same population size does not produce the same stuff. The American worker is by far the most productive on the planet. That's not hyperbole. That's not us saying, you know, we love America and play the national anthem, though we do love America. This is universal. You look at productivity rates of the workers of the, of the world, and the United States is way above everybody else. And we're increasing at a time that the rest of the world is decreasing. Productivity is falling in China. And productivity is increasing in the United States. And this is the cusp of a bigger productivity increase with automation. As we move more plants back to the United States, you have been following us saying that lots of factories are being built in the United States that would have been built elsewhere I just made reference to all these other other places that factories are being built, Canada and Mexico and, and Thailand and Vietnam and Malaysia. More, more investment has been made in the factories in the United States than all of those countries combined in the last year. I've talked about chip plants being made. We've spent over a trillion dollars in private, not governmental money on chip plants alone, factories within the United States border. When we talk about people moving from China, it's at a level that is, again, like you don't see unless there's a major war going on. These are big pieces of news, productivity increasing even after we're changing the way we make things here. That's part of the reason why the productivity is increasing. As those new plants come online with new technologies, we're producing more stuff and we're not using as many people to do it because it's more automated. And I've been slamming on this, but those are huge things to look at what actually expenses went up in 2022 and for the whole year and then looking at 2023 in a different light to see that this is when we're consolidating all the weirdness that's been going on for the past three years. We've got our our thinking caps on. We're not being surprised by weird supply chain events anymore. We're planning for them. We're entering redundancies into the system. And now we're getting efficient about it, which seems kind of like an oxymoron. How can you be redundant and efficient? Well, we're figuring it out. And it's the sort of thing that the technology of the day is good for to have multiple suppliers of the same part makes sense uh especially if you can keep them close together in price we're we're doing that now we're having a more integrated market in our own market this is cool um so in the middle of that we talked about the nightmare of commercial real estate and that could lead to other banking issues at the same time that productivity is going up and labor is looking good manufacturing is still negative but less negative than it was and becoming very soon very positive because those big big factories are going to be coming online in the next several months and so here's a prediction for you get ready for it manufacturing in the united states is about to increase Mm -hmm. and if i said that without all the precursors that i just led we're about to manufacture a lot more stuff in the united states than we used to people would go what are you talking about because all those plants have already been spent. The money is going into them. We're going to be doing this stuff, which means manufacturing has been down consistently for several years, and we're about to be moving into the positive realm again. So 
Our long-term outlook for the United States is glowing. There are definitely speed bumps on the horizon, uh, but we have not experienced the recession that everybody was expecting, and we were saying we don't see it. We didn't see it. We do have the speed bumps of commercial real estate on the horizon, and that's a relatively big thing. We have speed bumps in the emerging markets world. China is not the place to invest anymore, and a lot of people are still invested in China. So moving out of that is going to take some time, and it may require a, a bad, bad shock. It may require the market of China to really tank for people to finally pull out of China in mass. There's going to be restrictions on that. A lot of the money might be locked down. Oh, you can't sell this anymore. Things like that. So those are things that we're looking ahead as dangers. Do you have anything to add to that? The good stuff or the bad stuff? You've you've covered a lot of territory. Uh, although I think we ought to put it in perspective. That's always good. The the run up recently in the S and P five hundred has largely been from a few very large tech companies. So when you read, as I do, or you see that the S&P 500 is um, perhaps too high, there are sections in the market that are not. We have not seen the uh, panic run into the market that shoots to heaven. Now, why am I saying all this? Because there is so much worry out there. And as we said last hour, a bull market climbs a wall of worry. We've got some serious things to worry about. So what should you do about it? Well, make sure your investments are long-term. Uh, it's important that when you put money, and, I, and I, it amazes me that people generally don't understand this, even people who have been investing for years, when you put money in a savings account, uh, in a insured position or in a, uh, let's say, government money market fund or something, you're not trying to get growth. You're trying to avoid loss, and that's very appropriate. And it'll pay you a certain interest rate. And that's the interest rate you pay. It's paying. We often get the question, what interest rate is the stock market paying? And the answer is it's not. And why am I saying all this? Because a lot of bad things could happen. And it's, it is, it's a scary sort of thing to be in, which is why we say investing is a long-term operation. Investing is converting your money into a company or a pool of companies. And it's sitting there and yanking it out during bad times is a terrible idea. And so when we talk about the fact that there are some serious issues in the world economy that could affect us, that is not meant to say you should pull out of the market. It's meant to say we don't know which way the market will go as a result of this. But over the long term, the market historically has risen, but it's over the long term. And that's important, important, important thing to include in your thought process as we approach the end of our second hour and we've been talking about all the things that could go wrong in china and europe and so on to remember that if you're an investor you put your money into something with the intent of selling it later for a higher price than you paid for it you're not trying to get interest you're trying to get a higher price when you sell it which means if you buy into the low portions of the market historically those are called value areas you will have done better historically and i won't emphasize historically here uh than if you bought into the highest part of the market the part the high-tech gigantic companies that everybody is really thrilled about i mean apple is up what something like 47 percent this year and that is definitely the high-flying things that's a typical the high-flying things that are driving the market but slow and steady wins the race. And despite all the gloom and doom we've been talking about, this clearly is an opportunity at this moment in time, as in every moment in time, uh, to invest. John Templeton said it very well when he said, it's time in the market that makes 
people, he used this term, wealthy, not timing of the market. Yeah. And you mentioned that Apple's up 44% or something this year. Um, that was before Thursday and Friday. They're up. Now they're 37% up. They oh, they're 37% up. They hit a major okay. hit at this Chinese announcement. Um, the, but they're only up 37% this year. Right. Yeah. Oh, well, that's a major hit, right? You know, it's a major hit. They're only up 37%. Um, well, compared to where they were up year to date, 46%. And earlier in August, they were up 51%. So just to know what has Apple done to cause a 37% rise this year? It came out with a new iPhone. Yeah. It was, and reviews on the iPhone? Oh, yeah, pretty good. It's pretty good. Very expensive. It's very expensive. It's pretty good. How are the sales? Oh, about, about what they were. A little better. 37% increase? Seems a bit much. Um, yep. and that is, uh, we're looking across, there's parts of the market that are just that, that we are in a bull market again, and it's going to climb a wall of worry. And I've got to say that my judgment on things like meta and Tesla and Apple has been bad in the past because we look at things that own things and are producing consistently. We don't like to see things that are being valued based on what they're going to do in the future. We would like to see things valued on what they are today. When Facebook wasn't meta, it came out as Facebook and it had its IPO. The two of us said, hey, this is stupid. Why would anybody buy this? At this, this It's not even making any money. It doesn't have any method of making any money. Well, they figured it out. They had a lot of people that were on their site for a long time, and they figured out how to make money. Now, the fact that I can't stand to get on the site anymore is irrelevant because a lot of people get on that site, and a lot of people spend a lot of money on the advertisers on that site. So it's a profitable company. And if you had bought it way back when we said it's a bad idea to buy it, you would have made a tremendous amount of money, huge amount of money on the return of, of Facebook that is now meta, meta. But knowing what we know and the number of new startups that hit that have no idea how they're going to make money, the vast majority of those startups failed. They never figure out how to make any money. When we're looking at Apple and saying 37% increase year to date doesn't make any sense. It's because we don't really understand growth companies very much. Uh, it, it could do really well, but we don't see why it's gone up that way. When we long-term look at the market, we want to look at things that have done well in good times and in bad times. We want to look in more of the value side. And long-term, the returns are actually better on value investing than on growth investing. So having said all that, we still see a 37% increase at Apple. Caveats in there, we're not good at growth companies, but we just can't see why putting Apple's price-to-earnings ratio at 30 makes any sense. That means it's going to take 30 years of this year's earnings to pay back the price of the company. That doesn't make sense unless they have really good ways of making a lot more money in the future, things that they haven't told us about. And I am not willing to bet on that. That's it. That's very much right. Now, Meta at least has a theory. Yeah, they have a theory. They have an idea. They're going to make more money. Yeah. They have, which is that people are going to use VR, augmented reality and virtual reality a lot. And I think there could an argument could be made for that. Maybe Apple will come out with something as as groundbreaking as the iPhone at some point in the future, but so far I haven't seen any sign of whatever that thing is going to be. They did come out with their own version of augmented reality, 
which for the design process and as a business-to-business type investment is a really interesting concept. The uh, Microsoft has their own version of it, and business-to-business, it's been doing really well. Tesla's using it on all their design, and so there's some really cool stuff out there, but I'm not seeing a thing that's going to disrupt the way everyone communicates with each other again. We've been through a couple of those, and it's, you know, I'm not seeing it right now. So how is it that Apple intends to rise, raise its earnings in the 30, 40, 50% range? I don't know. Okay. So weird stuff happening everywhere. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake. McClure. Uh, this is the Personal Wealth Coach. And we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is a professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is and it's less disclosureable it takes less time to do if it's just the same name so we've been doing this program here uh on this on this station 1400 a.m in temple since 1996 we've been doing this a long time and we haven't been paid for it ever uh we also have not ever paid for it So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational, and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve that's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at two, five, four, nine, four, seven, 11, 11. You can reach that line tool free at one, eight hundred nine, one, four, seven, five, two, six. That's eight hundred nine, fourteen plan. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. 
Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.